Oh, do you have any easy questions? (laughs) Good, let's sit. Can I talk about unworldly neutral Vedana? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, just to clarify one, one, one level simpler than that, for those of you, uh, Bonnie spoke about it uh, beautifully last night, but just to clarify, in the Satipatthana Sutta, you know, in the second foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of what are called feelings or feeling tones, uh, the Buddha breaks it down into worldly and what is translated as unworldly feelings. Uh, and actually, until I was working on my book, I never even paid attention to that distinction. You know, and so it's really uh, became of interest as I studied the sutta a little more. And that basic distinction, uh, just to remind you, you know, the worldly feelings are based on uh, sense objects. You know, and so worldly pleasant feelings are pleasant sense experiences. And worldly unpleasant feelings are painful sense experiences. The unworldly feelings, pleasant and unpleasant, have to do with uh, really the state of mind. So the unworldly pleasant feelings, as, as Bonnie mentioned, you know, when we're feeling generous or feeling loving, there's a pleasant feeling that's associated with that uh, that's pleasant, but it's not based on a sense pleasure. It's based on a wholesome state of mind. A painful or unpleasant, unworldly feeling might be (coughs) in a time of um, renunciation, you know, where there may be actually something unpleasant in the renunciation, but it's it's coming from a spiritual uh, attitude, or there are certain stages of insight where we're going through, they're commonly called the dukkha stages, you know, where we're experiencing a lot of unpleasant feeling, but it's not coming from a painful sensation particularly, it's coming from our spiritual practice, from the meditative development, and so it's called an unworldly, unpleasant feeling. Um, But I don't really have an example of an unworldly, oh, I do. It just came. <laughs> and this, this itself is a little interesting, at least to me. So in the, in the course of the meditative development, as we go through stages of insight, you know, there are times of tremendous, first, just, just struggle, 
you know, to get settled, to develop a little momentum, concentration. At a certain point, the momentum develops and the mindfulness starts to happen by itself. And at that time, we can start going through different stages of understanding. And some of them are very joyous, a lot of happiness, a lot of bliss, a lot of excitement, a lot of rapture. Some, as I just said, are the dukkha stages where we're experiencing a lot of unpleasantness. And it's just helpful, I want to emphasize this point. It's helpful to have this even theoretical understanding because the conditioning in our minds to equate good meditation with pleasant feeling and bad meditation with unpleasant feeling goes really deep. Now, how often have you had a painful sit and then thought to yourself, oh good, this was really a good sitting. <laughs> you know, we're, we're kind of hardwired to associate good with pleasant and bad with unpleasant, and we carry that over to our meditative practice as well, but it is not relevant. And so we have to decondition that understanding. And so this is why kind of even having a theoretical understanding it times in our meditation are really pleasant, times are unpleasant, and sometimes the unpleasant times are deeper than the pleasant times. You know, so it's, you want to be careful not to be assessing your practice in terms of pleasant or unpleasant. Well, as we go through these different levels or stages of understanding, the practice culminates in a place of great equanimity, where the mind is really unaffected by pleasant or unpleasant. And at that particular time in practice, which is very um, smooth, very effortless, the predominant feeling tone at that time is neutral. That the predominant feeling is not pleasant, it's not unpleasant. So that would be an example of a neutral, unworldly feeling. What's interesting about that is that in some uh, kind of unusual way, that neutral feeling is more pleasant than pleasant, you know, because it's more refined. Uh, and so there's just this, you know, all of these realms of experience that as our practice unfolds, we begin to taste in different ways. So thanks for the question. Could you hear that in the back? No. Well, I'll just paraphrase briefly. So sometimes in the experience of the knowing arising with the object, the knowing seems transparent, and it's hard to uh, really discern clearly whether uh, one is being aware of the knowing or the object. 
Okay, so when you look at this, you see color, certain color, and form, right? They're two distinct things, but they're inseparable. The color is in a form, and the form has a color. So this arising of knowing an object, (coughs) knowing of sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a thought, which is really what our life is. Our life is a progression. It's this pairwise progression, moment after moment, of knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. You know, and as the mindfulness gets clear, we begin to see with greater discernment that that actually is what's happening moment to moment. But you can't separate the knowing from the object. It's not that the knowing is here and the object is here. They're two distinct aspects arising simultaneously. And so I wouldn't struggle to have that sense of trying to separate the two out. Rather, in the awareness of knowing an object in every moment, you may find quite naturally, without, without struggling, that most predominantly <coughs> the, it's the object that will be clearer because it's more tangible. But at different times, especially when the mind is somewhat still, uh, sometimes it's that foreground background uh, experience where the knowing aspect becomes very clear, even as you're aware of the object. So I would just let that happen rather than you know, struggle to particularly see it. There are times in the practice, and again, this is as the mindfulness deepens and the concentration deepens, uh, sometimes people have experiences where uh, the objects really fall away and all one is aware of is the knowing. So at that time, that aspect becomes very clear. Well, of course, we don't know in any particular case what the story was. Um, so as many of you probably know, there are, in, in the Buddhist teachings, there are three kinds of craving, which is an elaboration of the second noble truth. Right? The first truth of dukkha, the cause of dukkha, which is craving, and then the Buddha delineates them into three kinds. The most obvious one is craving for sense pleasures. So we're all familiar with that one. The second kind of craving is craving for existence or craving for becoming. Or craving for continued existence. And this classically (coughs) 
uh, refers, you know, to craving for the next life. But it has a much more immediate uh, manifestation and one that's, I just find really interesting is to see both in our meditation practice and in our lives how often we're leaning into the next moment or the next event or the next happening, right? So it's a craving for becoming something. Uh, and we can, really, we can really see that quite clearly, that tendency of the mind uh, to look toward the future in anticipation of becoming something or having some experience. Um, and to notice the difference between that sort of leaning forward, the craving for becoming something, I call it cloning oneself in the future. <laughs> you know, we kind of imagine some future thing with our clone there enjoying it. And of course it's exactly that craving which keeps this whole wheel going. And to contrast that in your experience, not, not simply as theory, contrast that with experiences you may have when you feel that you are totally relaxed and settled back in the moment. When there is not that craving for becoming where we're completely in the awareness of what's arising. And this can be very subtle. Now, there's one teacher, I'll get to the question. <laughs> a, I, learned, I learned this technique from my teacher, Manindraji. People would ask him questions, and then he'd just answer whatever he wanted to. <laughs> and eventually he would work, he would work his way back around to the question. Uh, but that's kind of the beauty of the Dharma, it's so rich, you know, everything becomes a doorway to so much. I may be jumping to your answer because I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> We're talking about craving for becoming. Yes, thank you. <laughs> it's nice having coaches. <laughs> so, uh, many of you probably either have studied with or have heard of Utejaniya, Saito Utejaniya, uh, Burmese monk who's common. So, one of his techniques, which is quite uh, really useful, and he, he emphasizes this a lot in his teaching, where he uh, reminds people to, to frequently be checking the attitude in the mind. You know, and so with whatever's arising, check the attitude. You know, is there greed? Is there wanting? Is there aversion? Because often we're viewing things with these filters in place and we're not aware of them. Right? So check the attitude. I had heard this and so I was just sitting one day, very simple, I was just sitting feeling my breath. I mean, it was, it was just completely simple. And I remembered, you know, this little instruction. And so I just kind of asked myself the question, 
Oh, what's the attitude in the mind? Not even thinking that there was an attitude in particular, it was just the breath. And it was so interesting to me. Just in the moment of asking the question, well, what's the attitude? I felt my mind relax back from a wanting that I didn't even know was there. It was kind of this slight, I'm with the breath, but there was a slight in order to mind. You know, I'm with the breath in order for a little more calm, or in order for a little more concentration. Or, so it was very subtle, it was just this slight craving for becoming. So it can be on that subtle a level, as well as the big ones, you know, where we're, we're really craving to become someone or something. So the craving for non-existence, that's the third kind of craving. Craving for sense pleasures, craving for continued existence, craving for non-existence. That's when we just feel life in some way is so intolerable that we, we want not to be. You know, and perhaps, you know, in, in cases of suicide, this, you know, that's a very complex uh, issue. Uh, but it may well be that that is very strong in the mind at that time. In a much uh, less dramatic fashion, I had an example in my practice with this craving for non-becoming. It was the first retreat I did with Saida Upandita in 1984. And it was an incredibly difficult retreat for me. I mean, it was, he was tremendously demanding uh, as a teacher, and I was going through a lot of different stuff, and uh, there was a lot of dukkha in that retreat. And I remember one time I was sitting and I, this was in 84, so you have to know the historical era. Uh, and I heard planes come overhead. And the thought came, oh, maybe it's the Russians and they're going to drop some bombs and I can stop sitting. <laughs> uh, not very compassionate for my fellow yogis. <laughs> but it was just that let me out of here. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be here. Now the problem with all of these kind of cravings, or the problem or the, the crux of the problem, and the one that's most subtly hidden in the craving for non-becoming, is they're all rooted in a sense and a belief in self, right? Craving for sense pleasure is the self that wants to be gratified. Craving for becoming is the self that wants to continue to be cloned. Craving for non-becoming is the self that wants to disappear. But the problem is that there is no self in the first place. You know, of course, there'll be many more talks on what that teaching is about. So even the craving for non-becoming is strengthening the attachment to the samsaric wheel. Right? Because we're just reinforcing 
the belief and sense of self that doesn't want to be here. So I don't know if any of this made some sense to you, but that's the general framework of other kinds of craving. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, the question is how to reconcile what seem to be two contradictory uh, paradigms for the practice. One is to simply sit and be with whatever's arising, and the other is be discerning about what's wholesome and unwholesome and take corrective action when we see unwholesome things arising in the mind. Uh, uh, I think you're correct in, at least I inferred that you were saying there is a way to reconcile the two, uh, which there is. So you could almost take it as uh, different levels of strategies. So if something is arising and we are able to be with it, we are actually able to be mindful of it, then there's nothing more to do. Then it's sufficient. But here there's a really important distinction to understand. Uh, and it's a distinction that in one aspect of my practice I wasn't able to see for a long time. And it sustained a lot of dukkha. And that is the difference between recognition and mindfulness. So recognition, using the, using the Buddhist uh, vocabulary, recognition is a function of the mental fact of perception. That, that's that's the, the nature of perception, is to recognize what's happening. So you could be recognizing that you're sleepy. And thinking that because you're recognizing that sleepiness is here, you're being mindful. But you could be recognizing it, hating it, or loving it, (laughs) or having all sorts of uh, attitudes in the mind that are not mindful. Because mindfulness means being aware of what's arising without attachment, without aversion, without identification with what's happening. So if you're actually able to be mindful of sleepiness or any other unwholesome factor, you know, anger arises or lust arises. And here the noting can be such a good feedback for us. You know, because if anger is arising, you're able to note oh, anger, anger. And you can tell in the tone of the note whether you're really accepting of it or there's 
judgment of it. That, that could really clue you in as to whether you're being mindful or not. If you are, that's all that you need to do. But very often, you know, with deeply conditioned unwholesome patterns, we need, we find ourselves unable to be mindful or to sustain mindfulness of an unwholesome pattern. And so then the Buddha gave, you know, many, many different skillful means for coming out of the unwholesome mind state. Uh, you know, and you had many suggestions in terms of working with sleepiness or different of the hindrances. Um, yeah, so, so it's just a question of seeing which of those uh, is appropriate. The question points to a bigger philosophical understanding, again, which I'll probably talk about more uh, in more detail. Uh, the bigger philosophical understanding of the union of the relative and more ultimate levels. You know, so that on the more ultimate level, everything is empty, empty of self, empty of substance. On the relative level, things exist and there's good and there's bad and there's wholesome and there's unwholesome. People can get attached to either of those. People can get attached to the relative level of you know, conventional reality, which mostly people are and we're just lost in, you know, in this drama of our lives, but people can also get attached to the idea of emptiness and can see this not infrequently in spiritual communities where everything's up-leveled. You know, whatever's around, oh, it's just empty. You know, it, do it doesn't matter, it's empty. And it's said in some of the texts that that's the more dangerous attachment. Because if that's the attitude we bring, uh, there's no, there's no foothold to come out of it. You know, it's, everything is up-leveled. Oh, it's empty, it's empty. So the Korean Zen master, Sung San, he had a wonderful expression for this. He said, there's no right and there's no wrong, but right is right and wrong is wrong. <laughs> you know, and we have to hold both. It's our, our practice and our lives is a unity of these two levels where we can discern wholesome from unwholesome. And our practice is to purify the mind. And at the same time, we develop or deepen our wisdom into the essential emptiness of it all, which actually helps us let go of the unwholesome. So they really, uh, they really work together and need to be seen as a, uh, as a whole. So both. That's the short answer. <laughs> Let me. Uh, there are a few questions I got in notes. Uh, what is the mind? What is it? What is it not? So I just want to preface what I'm about to say, uh, 
with the comment that uh, you know, in the different spiritual traditions, and certainly within the different Buddhist traditions, there are many models and descriptions of the mind, of the body, of reality. And so remember that the description is never the experience itself. And so I'll use words to describe and I'll, I'll describe a particular model right, that is classical and that I found very helpful. But keep in mind that it is still a construct. Now we're creating concepts to describe something. So as you hear the concepts, and one could describe the same experience with a completely different set of concepts. So the question really is, you know, as we hear the different teachings, not to, not to reify the concepts, but simply, is this useful? Is this way of describing experience useful? Or is it a skillful means for us to free our minds? So just keep that in mind. The model that I'm going to refer to comes from uh, the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology, which is a very clear model description of this mind-body process. So the question is, what is the mind? There are two... uh, there's two, you could say, two aspects to this question. So in its most basic nature, in this model, mind refers to consciousness, to the knowing faculty. And it's described as seeing consciousness, hearing consciousness, smelling consciousness. Right? It's the mind that knows each of the sense objects, mind objects included. So in the very simplest way of understanding it, you could say mind equals consciousness, and consciousness is the knowing faculty. It's that faculty of mind that cognizes. But in this model, this Abhidhamma model, consciousness is arising in every moment. You know, when we hear or see or smell or taste or touch or think or some mind object. So every moment, consciousness is arising and passing away, each with its own object. But along with each moment of consciousness, there arises together with it what are called uh, an assortment of mental factors, mental qualities that are arising together in different combinations in every moment of consciousness, and they are coloring the consciousness in a particular way. So, for example, in a moment of seeing or hearing or tasting, there's the knowing of it, just, just basic consciousness, but then there may be the mental factor of greed. And so it colors the consciousness with the flavor of greed. Or there may be the mental factor of love, or compassion, or hatred, or mindfulness, or distraction. So all of these qualities of our experience really are the different mental factors that are arising in every moment of consciousness. 
And as I said, they arise in different combinations. So in terms of the question, what is mind, you could either think of it as it's simply consciousness, the knowing faculty, or more completely, you could think of it as mind plus the mental factors, consciousness plus the mental factors. I realize that this particular model, uh, I have a very kind of philosophically oriented mind, in case you haven't noticed. <laughs> and so I kind of like all this stuff. <laughs> Some people, it's like, <laughs> you know, completely uninterested in this model, and it doesn't resonate, and that's why I prefaced it by saying this is just one way of understanding it, you know, and that in different traditions they talk about it in so many different ways. Buddhahood. <laughs> You're quite correct in, I think, in saying that full enlightenment is a rare event, although not as far as one can intuit, not unknown. You know, the, there are and have been from the Buddhist time beings who really seem to be great, great enlightened masters. Of course, from the outside, you can never know. Uh, but where it's not unreasonable, you know, to uh, perhaps to have that view when, when you meet beings like that. So it's not impossible. You know, there are beings uh, who can attain this. It is rare. Again, this is another model. In this particular form of practice, not only are there different stages of insight that we go through, but as you might be familiar, there are the four stages of enlightenment. You know, where there's the first glimpse of Nibbana, the first taste of it. And that's the experience of what is called stream entry. You know, where one has entered the stream towards full enlightenment, and at that point, there's no going back. And then at the second stage is called once returning, and then non-returning, and then, you know, full enlightenment. Stream entry, that first taste, is not at all an impossible goal for lay practitioners. You know, and there were many, many people, certainly in the Buddhist time, we read about in the text, but all the way to the present time, uh, you know, in, in our society, uh, 
people leading busy lives, but very committed to the practice, uh, who have had uh, that experience. So, I think having that as an aspiration is a totally reasonable aspiration. Um, And it requires a dedicated commitment to practice. So it's always very interesting to talk about this. Uh, Like in Asia, at the monasteries where, uh, at least in Burma, you know, where I practiced, they talked about this a lot, you know, and this really became the goal of practice. And it was both inspiring, but it also had a downside because, you know, so easy to get caught up in a kind of unhealthy striving, you know, and where, where, and I've seen people, I've seen people, it's like almost become obsessed with this goal, you know, and goal orientation unhealthily. It, it does not, it's not psychologically healthy and it's not healthy for the practice. And so in the West, in some way, I think we've gone to the other extreme, you know, where we don't talk about it a lot. So people don't get caught up in that striving. But that I think is, has its own limitation because there are tremendous possibilities for us. You know, and we can aspire to levels of awakening. And we can learn to hold it in a balanced way. And for myself, I've gone through, you know, of all these years, it's like I've fallen in every. Is pitfall something you fall into? <laughs> I've fallen into every pitfall along the way. I mean, so I'm really familiar with all of them. So, where I've come to, and it feels really, for me, a beautiful space in which to hold this, I see the Dharma as just being so vast, you know, the potential for understanding and the nature of the mind, the nature of consciousness and the nature of awareness and the power both of the defilements and the power of the wholesome factors. These are, these are powerful forces. The whole world is a manifestation of these forces in the mind. So we're talking about a big thing here. You know, this, this is not like a little uh, self-help retreat. This is part of a very big thing. It's part, of, it's part of an understanding and a transformation of consciousness. And it's huge. So when I hold it in that way, when I see that and see the vastness of the potential, the fact that it goes so deep and is so vast, some people might say, oh my God, that's, I'll just never get there. I hold it in exactly the opposite way. It's like, it allows me to settle back just into where I am, holding this very big vision of what's possible. And then just the inspiration to keep on walking. 
That's all. So it's holding, you know, it's holding the vision, the aspiration, without that kind of neurotic striving. It's like settling back into the beauty of the unfolding Dharma. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so the question was about the, the place of reflection in practice. And, you know, at different times we refer to different reflections and you find them in the texts, but we don't really teach it very specifically here as part of this technique. And so it's just wondering, you know, what place does it have and how much should I use it or not? Uh, it's true that it's not in this particular tradition of practice, um, that was not given so much emphasis. However, just in my own practice and studying with different teachers and also from studying the texts, you know, and I'm not a Buddhist scholar, but just from reading the texts, especially as a practitioner, you know, not while you're here, but when you're home <laughs> yeah, and you're, you're reading, they really come alive. And so I have found certain reflections extremely helpful. You know. There's one basic question to ask yourself as you're reflecting about something. Is it useful? You know? So I'll, sh- I'll just share with you one reflection uh, that was not taught to me, but I actually read it in the suttas, and I found it really helpful. The Buddha was talking about uh, reflections on death. And so there's a whole long description, which in some other talk I might go into in more detail, but... Uh, the end point of it was I started taking some times in practice. Now, I was doing it especially in the walking for some reason, although it could be at any time. But I would take short periods of time, maybe five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, where I would be with each step as if it were my dying step. You know? So I, w- I wasn't thinking about, oh, this is my dying step. It was really dropping into that experience. You know, because I think we all have the, probably have the aspiration to die as consciously as we can. Okay, so... You have, uh, what, four and a half weeks left? Uh, however, however many weeks left to practice it. You know, to actually take a step 
as if this is your dying step. And what I found, it was so amazing, by just that, it was like an unspoken reflection, a non-verbal reflection. The mindfulness became so vivid and so clear in a completely effortless way. It it was amazing how powerful that reflection was. if we're really in a moment's experience and we're, this is our dying moment. That wakes us up. You know, and so it's a great way to practice. So that's just one example. You just you, you 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 just said it. <laughs> I mean that's beautiful. Okay, so could you hear it in the back? Yes. <laughs> There's nothing more to. Say. Of course it worked. <laughs> it works. <laughs> you were mindful right at the beginning of that thought process and in that mindfulness you recognized oh here we go (laughs) and through the power of that mindfulness because you caught it right at the beginning it just lost its power you know it no longer seduced you it was the mindfulness you know and the seeing clearly which brought that result and that's exactly what can happen So just to elaborate a little bit on that, you know, we all have our own very seductive stories that we just get lost in again and again. Once you recognize, you know, some of the, particularly the repetitive ones, you know, it's the same story that comes, but it's so seductive, you know, that it comes and we just, we just get lost on the train. I found it very helpful, even if at first it's looking, we're lost, but we look back to the beginning. Okay, what was the first, what was the first few words of the story? And to see it clearly enough so that you could actually write the words down. You know, not, not kind of a vague impression of what it's saying, but to be really precise about what are those initial words 
that if we're not mindful of, we're going to hop on that train of association. Once you recognize, oh, those are the ones. So then it's as if you can keep, you set the radar, and you keep a lookout for the arising of that particular set of words, a first sense. I call it the trigger point. What, what's the trigger for the whole long train? When you can recognize clearly what it is and you set the intent, okay, keep an eye out for it, then exactly... I think also that the point that you're talking about has a nuance of feeling. It's a feeling sometimes mm-hmm. that can start to pause uh-huh. and then the words come that you're talking uh-huh. It, it, it can happen in many different ways. So sometimes, as you say, it might start with the feeling. Sometimes it may start with the word and then the feeling comes. So however it starts, keep an eye out for the trigger point. And many of you probably have heard me. That this, having been caught in a story like that on one retreat, this was a two-month retreat of anguish. <laughs> it was... <laughs> it was hard. <laughs> because I had... It's, it's a long story. <laughs> but the, the seductive thought that just kept coming back was... I had done something that just had bad physical consequences for me. And the thought kept coming, oh, how, could I, how could I have been so stupid? You know, so it was that self-judgmental thought, and it actually had really bad consequences. So it felt justified. So after, I had a long, after a month of just getting caught in this again and again and again, and I, I would spend, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour lost in just this story and self-judgment. So finally, I I said, okay, Joseph, (laughs) get it together here. (laughs) What is going on? (laughs) And I saw just this. I mean, I, I saw the words that would set me going. So as soon as I saw those words in the mind, it's what I call... um, I don't know, we could call it amusement park dharma. You know, every time I saw those few words in the mind, (laughs) 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 you know how you kind of shoot these guns in an amusement park at a a target. That's what I would do. I, I couldn't give it a moment's, I could not give it a moment's, what do you call it? Airtime. You know, because if I did, I was gone. It was very effective. So that, going back to an earlier question, you know, there was no ability to simply be mindful of it. it needed another strategy to not get caught. Uh, and so this is also part of, just let me say about using this particular technique. Actually, it was, uh, I was teaching in Switzerland. And this one guy, really, he liked it a lot. And he came into an interview and he said he, he added something to the technique. So he had his own little story and he would go, and then he, 
<laughs> yeah. Cool it off for the next shot. But the, the essential part of this little technique is that it's done with humor. Yeah, and that's why I call it amusement park, Dom. <laughs> because if it's done with aversion, then we're just feeding the whole process. So this is all part of kind of the play aspect of our practice. You know, even in things where we get really caught or stuck or suffering, you know, can we take interest in, okay, what's, what's going on here? You know, how is the mind getting caught? And what do I need to do to not be caught? Uh, so there's a lot of room for creativity as we explore mindfulness. There was one other. I recall hearing you mention six-part walking on a Dharmasi talk. Uh, Please clarify six-part walking instruction and how it can be supportive to interest and continuity of attention in the walking practice. So this was something that at one time in my practice was really helpful. And uh, it was when, actually in that first retreat with Saira Upandita, now usually we've talked about the walking practice and walking at different speeds. And usually we talk of the slow speed as dividing the step into three parts, you know, of lifting and moving and placing. And so many of you may be spending some time doing that practice. So at one point, uh, Saida suggested that I divide the walk into six parts. And you could name them, whatever you want, but so it was lifting and then kind of dividing the forward movement into two. So it was lifting and then you could say moving, swinging, something like that. And then lowering, placing where you first touch, and then stepping. Right. So it's not the words that are, that are important, but it's just dividing it into those six parts. You know, the lifting and then two parts of the moving forward and then the lowering, the touching, and then the stepping. What I found was very similar to what happened when I checked the attitude when I was feeling the breath. When I was doing the three-part walking, and I would often be doing it very slowly. When I started doing the six-part walking, I found that my mind settled even further back into the moment. That even when I was walking slowly in the three-part, you know, there was just the most subtle leaning forward into the next part of it. Do you follow what I mean? And I, I, I had no idea that that was going on until I did the sixth part and, oh, and I could feel a level of settling back that was significantly different. So I did that, you know, for parts of each walking period. I didn't do it for the whole time. Um, but I, I practiced it quite a bit, you know, at different times. And that helped me then 
when I was walking more quickly, whether it was the three-part or even a more normal pace, having gotten the bodily feel of that level of being settled back, it then helped me be in that space even as I was moving more quickly. You know, and so that's another example of a kind of experimentation, you know, where we just learn more subtle ways of resting, really, you know, of not leaning forward. So if you like, you know, it would be something just to experiment with. Uh, you could take some period of time, you know, to do it for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, or the whole period, you know, just see, see what's useful. One strong recommendation, don't do six-part walking as you're leaving the hall. <laughs> okay, maybe the last question. Yeah. So the question was, could I say something about, <laughs> you know, jhana practice and if, if I've practiced it and how, how it's fit in and, uh, to Vipassana practice? First, as many of you know, uh, as with almost everything else, different teachers have very different ideas of what jhana is, what the experience is. And so just to know that, you know, and there are uh, ways of practice that are more accessible, ways of practice that are really much more difficult to access. So it depends who's teaching it and how they understand jhana. So I practiced it mostly uh, with Sayadaw Upandita doing metta, using, using the Brahma Viharas, and there's a very specific technique for doing that. And it was really helpful. You know, it develops, it, it develops a strength of concentration and it helps to stabilize the concentration. Um, and so at different times, you know, I've, I've been practicing many, many years now and I think I was talking to somebody about this. It's like, you know, you go into a Dharma supermarket and everything in the market is good. It's like you can't go wrong. And in this, what I was talking about before, in this kind of vast vision of our practice and of the Dharma, at different times, we want to explore and practice many different qualities, you know, and so sometimes all of the energy is really, we're just on fire with Vipassana. And at other times, I don't know, we, we might just have an interest, oh, this is a period where I'd really like to develop the metta or develop concentration or jhana. Um, so it all, they all work together and they're all supportive to each other. Uh, and if you think of your practice over the long, Whole, then it's like, especially when, when you have uh, 
kind of when you have a, a, a certain base of experience, you know, from over some years of practice anyway. So then uh, we, we kind of learn to follow our intuition of what, oh, this would be really helpful now. Um, yeah. So it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> Even what doesn't feel good is good. <laughs> so why don't we just sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.